What would happen if we interpreted the classical attributes of God in terms of mathematics? We find out this week. My guest is H. Chris Ransford, author of God and the Mathematics of Infinity, what irreducible mathematics says about Godhood. In this day and age, this is the sort of debate, of discussion that we need to have. And what I see in in debates out there in terms of religion and everything is arguments that, that are past their the expiry date. A lot of discussions in religion today goes like my holy book is holier than your holy book or is better than your holy book. We cannot and must not delude ourselves in thinking that an infinite God is using the vehicle of the language within that holy book to talk to us. It's time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us. Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. What can mathematics tell us about God? According to today's guest, physicist and mathematician H. Chris Ransford, mathematics can tell us quite a bit about the classical attributes of an infinite God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. The logic and beauty of mathematics offers an exciting path to exploring the nature of reality and of elevating the conversation between atheists, theists, and the rest of us about religion, science, and godhood. One of the consequences explains why there is evil if there's actually God in the universe or in the multiverse. to, To simplify the argument, let us imagine a universe where everything, where the entire multiverse is suffused with godhood, meaning everything is infinitely good. If everything is infinitely good, nothing ever happens. You don't have the differentials that are needed to have movement. You have what a physicist would would call heat death, in which everything is level at the same level, etc. Nothing ever moves, etc. You would call that in physics the second law of thermodynamics, whatever. But the truth is, you wouldn't have the differentials from whence life movement and everything else is created so the only way you can actually preserve the the, 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 a dynamic in the in the multiverse in the universe is to create a differential but to create a differential all of a sudden you have to have parts of the universe that are not suffused with infinite goodness that's the way you will create a differential the instant you have done that you have created a little bit of evil by definition. And you get to this point where you realize that to have a a live, living, God-stroke universe, to have movement, to have, in fact, Godhood itself, uh, who is different from being the curator of some sort of museum universe, you have to have a little bit of evil. Physicist and mathematician H. Chris Ransford earned advanced degrees in physics and engineering in France and Germany. He lectured at the University of Melbourne and was a research fellow at Monash University, Australia. In 2015, he published The Far Horizons of Time. His latest book that we are going to discuss today is called God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics Says About Godhood. Via Skype from Brussels, welcome, Chris Ransford, to Progressive Spirit. 
Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, tell me how you decided to uh, write this book and, and what are you setting out to do with it? It's fundamentally, it's a continuation uh, to some extent of the previous book. They're all books about the nature of reality. We have a, a, a world in the 21st century where basically no one agrees what it is, this reality we live in. And you have, for instance, to take an example going into this book, we have religious people and we have atheistic people. And the universe where different people, if they're religious or if they're not religious, the universe in which those people live, they're very fundamentally different universe. Do we live in a strictly materialist uh, universe where where things come from a big bang which happened for some reason that we can actually work out or either a spiritual side to the universe and this is the core question as to the nature of reality we live in and the the the, the problem I have when I observe the debates is is twofold really on the one hand the debates are simplistic, they're oversimplified. We have religious types who somehow conflate uh, God, spirituality, the idea of God into a set of rites of, of, sorry, but of fairy tales and rites, which if you analyze them a little bit, do not hold up to scrutiny because they end up being self-contradictory or simply contradictory to logic. And on the other hand, you have also what I would call reductionist scientists, scientists who say that everything is material, there's no spiritual component to anything, which would be somehow easy to accept if it did not contradict the experiences of absolute millions and millions of people. So the truth has got to be, I believe, somewhere in between. And I do not see a debate out there that is trying to address the possibility that actually the truth is in between, that God, uh, an infinite God, couldn't care less about some of the rights we see around, couldn't care less about whether, to give a very silly example, as to whether the Pope is wearing a nice hat or not. and. <laughs> One of the core contradictions we have when we try to address godhood is we are trying with our pedestrian IQs, let's face it, we have small IQs, we have an average of 100, we have a limited view of everything, we live for a limited number of years and we pretend to second guess something which we ourselves affirm is infinite as always lived, as an infinite equivalent IQ, and so on, and it's clearly impossible. But on the other hand, the scientists to reduce everything to matter become themselves contradictory, because matter is proven even by science itself to fundamentally be vacuum vibrations under a certain number of things. But matter comes from nothing, just like the Big Bang came from nothing, and slowly returns to nothing. Even the proton has got a half-life of uh, 10 to the power of 32 years of what it is. But it, it means that our debates are wrong on both sides. And that would be still okay if we were not, first of all, the 21st century. And second, if it didn't lead to all those horrible things we see around us. And those horrible things are not only the fact of extremists or fundamentalists. I remember, um, uh, you know, normal, um, uh, respectable pastors making horrible pronouncements about people who are going for thought crimes, not for their actions, but for what they think, going to burn in hell for eternity. And we're still there in the 21st century. And if I can, if we all can contribute to to stopping this and to moving forward a little bit, the, 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 the tone, the level of the debate, then I believe we'll go a long way towards defanging the, the possibility of staying put 
in a situation that gives rise to uh, people like ISIS, to, uh, to all the things we see around us. You, you know, uh, people might think um, that approaching God or Godhood, as, as, as the term you use, um, from mathematics um, might, might be a problem because people think, might think it's about faith or something of that nature. Can you explain why mathematics would be a, a good tool? Absolutely. That's a very good point. Actually, that's a very good point. And I think maybe it's uh, it's not obvious to understand immediately. The mathematics is actually not an analysis of God itself. I have a problem with gendering uh, God, so I'll say it with a, a, a low, um, uh, uppercase with a, a capitalized I. The what we can absolutely analyze, though, is the consequences of the attributes, the, 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 the characters, the, the qualities, the properties that we ascribe to God. We don't an, uh, analyze God directly. And I agree with you that, that we can consider that there's a problem in, in addressing God that way, but what we certainly can determine from a, a modicum of, of mathematical analysis is what is actually possible and what is not possible. And I have to, to specify that in two different ways. The, the first way is a lot of people will tell you that mathematics is basically uh, uh, based on axiom, meanings on, on statements that are not proven and a whole menagerie of mathematics is built from there. And that's true for a lot of mathematics. For instance, geometry, you will say that two parallel lines never meet or meet at infinity, and it's just a statement that's not proven. And on that, you build Euclidean geometry, but you cannot prove anything on that basis because your foundational statements at the root of geometry are actually assumptions. But the mathematics that I use here is only number theory. It is definition, de, definitional. No, 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 you define one plus one is two. That's it. Nothing else. And it doesn't matter whether you, whether you call it two or anything else. You actually can say that in reality, when you have two lions, you have one plus one lion. So that's the one thing about mathematics. The second thing is, of course, that... Uh, a lot of, of religion is based on things that you cannot prove, and so far so good. But then it says you have to take things on leap of faith. And uh, many religions have that. It's not simply the Catholic Church, which would have leaps of faith, but Islam has that, and so on and so forth. And the thing is, with number theories, with mathematics, you can actually analyze leap of faith. And I'll give you an example. If you have let us say you have somebody who's going to buy a lottery ticket and you can analyze mathematically whether or not buying a lottery ticket is acceptable or not. And in fact, the mathematical analysis says you have, say, one chance in, uh, in 10 million of winning the jackpot, depending upon the lottery, and that's acceptable. Then it says you have mathematically non-zero odds of of actually winning the jackpot, so it's fine. That, then the leap of faith, in that case, if you like, is justified. But you have at times things where the leap of faith is impossible, where it leads to a contradiction in terms. And one example, and it's, I know that I'm, I'm a little bit in a minefield here, but one example is human texts. There is absolutely no way that a human language, however ideal this language is, can function properly as a proper vehicle for conveying the godlike thoughts of something or somebody who is infinite. It just doesn't work, it cannot be done. Therefore, you can say that something, uh, a right or an obligation that would be based on something that is embedded within a text written in a human language that cannot possibly be godlike. And, and that's the mathematics of it. So how after that you, you may choose to interpret the mathematics or whatever is a different thing. But the mathematics says that very clearly. 
and uh, and in fact in many different ways uh, independent mathematical ways and I'll, I'll give you just an example to loop back to the leap of faith comment I was making earlier there is something in mathematics called the uh, undefinability theorem which is also known as Tarski's theorem which demonstrates very clearly that you cannot prove the truth of a statement from within the language that has made the statement. In other words, if I'm going to say this car is blue, I cannot prove from within the English language that I've used that the car is actually blue. I need external corroboration of the statement that doesn't come from within the language. And to be totally fair, religions realized that, which is the reason why they require leaps of faith. And I look back to what I was saying before, that so far so good, it's all right. But then the leap of faith itself is amenable to mathematical analysis. And I believe in this day and age, this is the sort of, of debate, of discussion that we need to have. And what I see in, in debates uh, out there in terms of religion and everything is, is arguments that, that are past their the expiry date, a lot of discussions in religion today goes like my holy book is holier than your holy book or is better than your holy book. We're not there. We have to say the holy book is only valid up to a certain point and it may be full of wisdom, it may be full of good rules whereby to live, but we cannot and must not delude ourselves in thinking that an infinite God is using the vehicle of the language within that holy book to talk to us, because that's not the way it works. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Chris Ransford. He's the author of the book we are discussing, God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics Says About Godhood. And you mentioned that you're really not approaching God or Godhood. You are approaching the attributes. And and you mentioned uh, in the book that uh, the theologians did, did get um, the attributes of infinity correct, all-knowing, all-powerful, and omnipresent. Uh, yes. Uh, but if um, so, talk about that a little bit. And and, and one question uh, that I'm uh, somewhat confused about: if Godhood uh, um, also needs to, these aren't static necessarily. God needs to uh, manifest, kind of uh, oh, improve. Uh, 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 absolutely. And in fact, even in uh, in theoretical physics, there's actually ways that can happen. The problem is in our traditional understanding of of Godhood, we make assumptions and we we accept hypotheses that crumble very quickly. Let me give you an example. We say that God is omniscient or, or all-knowing, but we don't define what that means. And if the all-knowingness were absolutely perfect, that would straight lead into a contradiction in terms, and I'll give you an example. If God presides over everything and is capable of seeing, of course, the past, the present and the future, and to see it quite well. If that present, past and future, and especially, of course, the future, is already somehow inscribed in the mind of God, then it means that God doesn't have free will. It means that to simplify everything, because we can complexify as much as we want, but a God that would be able to see the, the, the future, how it will unfold and unspool, would not be a God. It would be a spectator. It would be, in other words, a curator of some sort of museum universe. So you to, to, to make sure that God is God, you have to preserve somewhere the possibility of change. And the possibility of change doesn't mean that God knows the future or that God knows what it will decide in the future. It means that the future is actually open. And there is this necessity to uphold good uh, the godhood. There is this necessity of upholding 
a certain amount of leeway. Without that leeway, you have no free will, not only for ourselves, but you have no free will for any godhood itself. So you have to preserve that, that leeway. And preserving that leeway mathematically has fabulous consequences. And one of the consequences explains why there is evil if there's actually God in the universe or in the multiverse. It, 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 to, to simplify the argument, let us imagine a universe where everything, where the entire multiverse is suffused with godhood, meaning everything is infinitely good. If everything is infinitely good, nothing ever happens. You don't have the differentials that are needed to have movement. You have what a physicist would, would call heat death, in which everything is level at the same level, etc. Nothing ever moves, etc. You would call that in physics the second law of thermodynamics, whatever. But the truth is, you wouldn't have the differentials from whence life, movement, and everything else is created. So the only way you can actually preserve the the, the, a dynamic in the in the multiverse in the universe is to create a differential but to create a differential all of a sudden you have to have parts of the universe that are not suffused with infinite goodness that's the way you will create a differential the instant you have done that you have created a little bit of evil by definition and you get to this point where you realize that to have a, a live, living God-stroke universe, to have movement, to have, in fact, Godhood itself, uh, who is different from being the curator of some sort of museum universe, you have to have a little bit of evil. And, and this is the strength, I believe, of mathematical analysis, is because it makes you look with a different eye at the age-old questions that mankind or humankind have, uh, have been asking themselves for all those centuries, and we never could really figure it out. And a little bit of mathematical analysis goes towards you understanding this in, in re literally very quickly. Is your view similar to process philosophy or process theology um, in which... Uh, you talk, I'm talking about the uh, the uh, dynamic aspect uh, that Godhood would have to have as infinity, and I think of process uh, uh, philosophers like uh, Whitehead or or, uh, or even modern theologians talk about God in that term of of kind of it involved ever ever present in every atom of everything, and then and and luring uh, humanity forward or existence forward. Let, let me put that in a wider context. Um, if you discuss, and uh, uh, it doesn't really uh, show in the book because I've kept, uh, except that one passage, but I've kept uh, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of material that I kept out, but I went and interviewed uh, clergy and priests of uh, quite a number of denominations, and there were some areas of consensus. And even when I pressed, and at times I pressed on certain areas, and I had to realize that the the, the priests or the, the, the clergy had never asked themselves their questions, and to some extent they ad-libbed the answers. But one question I pressed consistently was whether they assumed, stroke, believed that God was infinite, and the consensus of the answers that I received was, yes, God is infinite, and infinite in all directions, which was one of the fundamental things. So if So now if you have an infinite dimensional, an, uh, God, uh, if you like, embedded in infinite space-time, then you can actually see theories in modern physics that you could easily map onto an idea of Godhood. And the idea of Godhood would be because of what we discussed earlier, the uh, uh, second law of thermodynamics, the fact that uh, God cannot restrain itself to being uh, the curator of a uh, you know museum universe and everything you could have a picture uh, of of total abstraction of multidimensional spirits 
regularly precipitating a part of itself, let's call that itself space-time, precipitating uh, a part of space-time into a lower dimensional space-time, such, such as three dimensions plus maybe one dimension of time, in which within this bubble of, of degraded space-time, there would be enough scope for different things to happen that would keep the rest of the of the universe alive and growing and therefore would prevent the 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 the, the deadening if you like possibility of a museum universe and you have many theories in modern physics that you can actually if you want you can map onto that and i'm thinking for instance of the bouncing universes uh, where, whereby you have universes that actually go through a big bang and then go through a, a, a crunch and and the crunch dissolves back into a, a background virtual reality and then something happened and you have a new big bang or you would have the latest um, Penrose, Roger Penrose you probably know is one of the distinguished scientists of the UK and he, he just wrote uh, he just wrote a new book but the book before was called Cycles of Time and in Cycles of Time it's a it's a fascinating book it gives a, um, a, a, a possible explanation for how the universe, the universe we know, so the three-dimensional in terms of uh, space-like dimensions and one time-like dimensions, would actually go through a series of incarnations whereby it would blow through a, a big bang, then, then slowly die, did hit death and so on, and keep going. And if you I don't want to to sound, you know, uh, overwinning or anything, but for the sake of theory, if you put yourself in the shoes of some god, that could be uh, mechanisms whereby god, infinite god itself would grow by having those successive lower dimensional incarnation, if you like, of, of lower d space-time, where experiences could be gathered, where things could happen, and so on and so forth. And one of the strengths of mathematical analysis is precisely that you can grow the infinite. So th that's something that maybe for for you know for theologians, especially uh, you know during the the first two thousand years of Western you know uh, post-Rome civilization would have been difficult to conceptualize. He that infinity can be small. Infinity can actually grow a lot. And if you're an infinite god, to actually push the envelope of what it means and grow, you could actually do something like that, which happens to be, once again, compatible with current physics. I'm speaking with Chris Ransford, and we're discussing his new book, God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics Says About Godhood. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Ransford. He's the author of God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics Says About Godhood. I, I want to go to infinity um, <laughs> with you. Uh, in fact, I was uh, interested to read that you talked about different, really, levels of infinity, that's, uh, that they have uh, some infinities have a higher cardinality, I think is what Absolutely. the word is. Can you explain uh that? Yes, very quickly. First of all, before I go into the cardinality, let's remember that everything, to a shocking extent, everything about infinity is massively counterintuitive. We believe we can understand things about infinity, and uh, typically, even advanced mathematicians and everything, we all wet. So this, uh, let's bear this in mind, and then I'll go through, first of all, three qualities of infinity, and then I'll go into the cardinality. There are three qualities of infinity that we have to bear in mind. The first one 
is whether the infinity is bounded or not bounded. It means that infinity can be limited uh, to the left and to the right. I'll give you an example. Take uh, um, a very small, very small segment, a very small segment of a line. If, for instance, between zero and one, let's say, all right? So if you take between zero and one, you can still easily fit an infinity of points in between. All you need to say is that the the position is at, uh, you know, arbitrarily uh, 0.178, and you can never, never end where you're going. So very clearly, if you assign the position with a number, you have an infinity of points between zero and one. So it's bounded on both sides. Then you have the then you can have non-bounded from zero to infinity or from minus infinity to plus infinity. The other thing is the quality. You have uh, one, two, if you have an infinity that goes one, two, three, four, five, and it never ends, it's infinite, but it doesn't contain 1.5, for instance, to use numbers as an example. And this is where it's easy to illustrate the lack of of intuitiveness. You would think that the infinity one, two, three, four, five, six, etc., ad infinitum would be twice smaller or half the value of the infinity that goes zero, one half, one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three, and so on. And in fact, it's exactly the same size. Okay. And and uh, then there is the other concept, which is the, the what is called strength which means the size of the infinity. And it's called the strength because mathematicians obviously do not like to use the word size for infinity. And it's actually very easy to, to understand. Take a, an infinite set, an infinite set, let's say the set of all natural numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, etc. right? And that set, from that set, it's very easy to build the set of all the subsets that you can build. So a subset is any finite uh, uh, collection of numbers from the infinite set. So the infinite set is zero, one, two, three, et cetera. And then you you count the number of sets that go one comma two, bang, one, three, four, bang, uh, zero, 256, three million and a half, bang. And you put all those associations of numbers from the original set into little sets. And you, it's very easy in mathematics to demonstrate that the number of the number of those subsets not only is infinite, but is infinitely bigger than the number that the, the, the number of natural numbers that you started from. In other words, you can have infinities that are bigger, that's the cardinality, infinitely bigger than the the other infinity. And when you translate this in terms of God, and the, the metric, by the way, is called Aleph. So if Aleph zero is the, 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 the natural numbers going to infinity, the number of the sets you can uh, make from that would be Aleph one, and then the sets of the set would be Aleph two, and you can go on and on and on to Aleph infinite. And the interesting thing is we have been able to identify things in the world that are of Aleph 1, simply those metrics, uh, Aleph, uh, sorry, Aleph 0, which is 1, 2, 3, etc., Aleph 1, which is the number of points in space, if you like, and Aleph 2, which is the number of curves or of mathematical functions that you can actually describe. We have absolutely no example for Aleph 3, let alone for Aleph anything. And all the priests and the clergy have, have been, you know, interviewing about that. They all agree to, to a man or to a woman. They all agree that God is Aleph infinite. And I agree with the definition. If we're going to, to define God somehow, we can only define God as being Aleph infinite. And it has a whole lot of flow-on consequences from that, which are actually extremely interesting. One of the consequences of, of, of the existence of Aleph Infinite, which we can build to, is that mathematics itself breaks down. And if mathematics itself breaks down, then when you're looking for the fundamental, ultimate reality, what is it, you will have to 
conclude that it's actually not even mathematics. We know already it's not matter because matter is vacuum vibrations and so on. And if you build up a little bit more, you'll end up at a place where you realize that the fundamental ultimate reality of the universe is actually something, for lack of a better word, that you must describe by the word mind stuff. So you come to a place where the fundamental reality behind everything, behind, behind this evanescent matter that we see around us and everything, is mind stuff. And this is, again, where the real debates ought to be. Chris Ransford, uh, God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics uh, Says About Godhood. He's speaking with me via Skype from Brussels. I wonder if the terms natural and supernatural are meaningful at all within a mathematical understanding of infinity. Now, I've said I don't believe in the existence of godhood as a supernatural being, but you've made me completely unsure. <laughs> and so uh, and so I'm kind of wondering, is supernatural a, a word uh, that is well, correspondence well, to infinite? I can, or I can tell you something. I can tell you that the, the existence of a personal god, of Michelangelo's bearded old man in the sky, or any rendition of that is demonstrably nonsense. And my my point is, we cannot afford in the 21st century to still still believe in that sort of thing. It is nonsense. And it's easy to demonstrate it's nonsense. If it's a personal um, uh, a God, then you analyze mathematically some of the inevitable attributes that will flow from this quality, and they will contradict what you say about godhood. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a very simple example. You analyze, and this is the strength again of mathematics, you analyze the old age-old debate that has been going on amongst theologians, uh, something called immanence and something called transcendence. The theologians have not settled the de debate, and the debate is whether God is immanent, meaning present absolutely everywhere, present in a murder weapon, present present in the sun, pre present in a gust of wind, or whether it's transcendent, meaning it lives in heaven, which is an undefined place, away from you, and is not in you and everything. And this is a serious debate, because uh, it, through the course of the centuries, some people who, who affirmed that God was present everywhere have been put to death because they was considered as being overweening, arrogant, and blasphemy. So it's not a it's not a, a side debate. And mathematics demonstrates in in I'm sorry, but in 20 seconds flat, the mathematical analysis demonstrate that if there's such a thing as a God, God can only be imminent. Pre in other words present everywhere, absolutely everywhere, including in you, etc., etc. So we're very far away from a personal God that stands in uh, in uh, irate judgment about uh, what do you do with yourself, etc., and so on. And the only acceptable mathematical, the only possible definition of Godhood is the, if you like, the higher dimensional universe experiencing certain things through you, through everything on a very temporary basis as a, a means of not turning itself and the, the, the wider space-time out there and the wider multiverse out there into something predictable that never that that is foreordained or preordained or predetermined, because whatever godhood may be, it cannot possibly be the curator of a museum space-time. So, so, you know, I think I, I quote um, uh, a, a very famous atheist in the book who, who say that we have to find a new definition of, of God, of Godhood. And uh, it's an interesting case because she um, was an atheist and she has experienced uh, mystical experiences uh, that she couldn't explain. And that happens to a lot of people. And what we have now in the 21st century is people, when that happens to them, and it happens to a lot of people I know, it happens, to, you know, it's very common, then they, they run back to the, to the people who say they have the explanations, which is basically the, the clergies that have a, a, a vested interest in you coming to their church and so on and so forth, who have all those pat explanations that are 
totally devoid of any scientific basis, bereft of any understanding and everything. And at this point in time, that's the only place where they can go. And I say, let us stop that. Let us go into the, the rest of the 21st century and then the 22nd century and so on and so forth, where we, um, um, I don't want to sound you know arrogant, but where we lift up the debate a little bit and we start trying to understand really what is it, this reality that we are part of, that we live in, that is all around us. And I'm not saying we're going to to find all the answers. You know, uh, knowledge is not trivial. Uh, it took hundreds of years before we understood what lightning was, before we understood what earthquakes were, and so on. And I, nobody can cast stones at primitive men who heard the thunder in the sky and saw the earth move and thought it was a god. The problem is, the true age of science started 300 years ago, and we are arrogant. We believe we know it all. Absolutely not. We need hundreds of more years of modest scientific analysis to understand a lot more things. And in fact, some of the, the most powerful mathematical tools that will help us towards an understanding of reality are extremely new, extremely not very well known at all, things like the wave functions and everything. And this is where we have to concentrate our efforts because, uh, you know, you, you know, um, uh, I was at uh, Harvard the other day and I, I crossed the frontispiece, so they call that, and they have this inscription, enter to grow in wisdom. And I thought that was so spot on, so perfect. That is exactly what we need to do. And as long as we have areas where we're not modest, as long as we have areas where we we execute leap, leaps of faith, where we take things without thinking about it, we take things for granted because it says so in a book or because a priest said so, we will not grow in wisdom. And strangely enough, the price we pay for not growing in wisdom is lengthening the separation from godhood if such exists. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I heard of a case where a, a pastor, God bless him, a pastor was saying that when we are in, quote, heaven, unquote, we spend our time singing hymns and, uh, and singing praises and everything. Now I'm telling this pastor, do the following, make the following experience. Pretend you're dead for six months and do exactly that every day. For six months, you're going to every single day go and sing hymns and praise God and do nothing else. Before you enter into the six months period, you're going to measure your IQ. At the end of the six months period, you're going to measure your IQ again. And the fact that during those six months, you didn't contend with reality. You didn't have to face choices. You didn't have to learn. You just spent your time singing away. You will also immediately notice after the six months that your IQ has fallen by a few points. One point, two point, three point. Now imagine an eternity of that. And there's a self-contradiction here. The only way we can get closer to God is by enhancing boosting our IQs to come closer to the one to the infinity IQ equivalent. That's the way we close the gap. That's the way we get closer. And some of the recipe that we're given, the mathematical analysis of those recipes demonstrate that they do the opposite. You see what I'm what, what I'm driving at? I'm driving at the fact we need to shift the debates. We need to grow up. Uh, yes, uh, very much so. Uh, Chris Ransford, my guest, God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics uh, Says About Godhood. One of the questions that's kind of been on my mind is, what would the difference be if there is a godhood or if there isn't a godhood in terms of the finite universe? How does the infinite manifest that's, itself? That, that's very interesting, and in fact, it will be the object of my third and final book on the, the nature of reality. When you do the mathematical analysis, you end up with, I'll, I'll simplify, but basically you end up with two possibilities, which we have actually no means of determining. 
one possibility is that actually infinity exists. And if infinity exists, mathematics break, breaks down, matter as a fundamental constituent of the universe broke down a long time ago, disembodied mathematics, and I, I can tell you something about this, but disembodied mathematics breaks down. And let me just go to, to, to show you what I'm driving at. Let, let me just do a, a, a little uh, backstep here. Uh, a lot of cosmologists have tried to understand whence the Big Bang, and uh, a lot of people, as you know, uh, dispute the Big Bang. At the end of the day, there was, for our universe, a foundational event. Whether you call that a Big Bang or it doesn't matter. But they try to understand, and there's very, very many ways a Big Bang or something we would see as a Big Bang can happen. You can have colliding brains in a higher universe. You can have a quantum fluctuation in a parent universe. There are very, very many ways. The problem of all the cosmological sources for Big Bang that we have from physics is that every single one of them, and there are quite a few, requires something prior to the Big Bang. Uh, in the, in, for instance, um, anyway, uh, time itself, um, uh, etc. there must be something prior. So the best minds in cosmology have investigated, but let us try to understand what was the very first? How can a Big Bang be born from nothingness, for absolutely nothing, from a true vacuum, for nothing at all, pure nothingness? And actually, uh, there, there has been a few things that have been put forward and proposed, but the, the, the best possible explanation, the, the others really don't stand up, was Alexander Vilenkin, who is a, a cosmologist, has written a, a few books, I think he's teaching at Tufts University right now, and etc. And he couldn't for, I think it lasted for one year, he was thinking every day about what can give rise to a big bang from pure nothingness. And he came up finally with something that worked. And the thing that worked was that the material universe, in other words, a, a so-called false vacuum could actually tunnel from pure nothingness. But there was one condition, there must exist something prior, which has nothing material, which was the disembodied laws of mathematics. And that is such a fabulous result. The only way that Big Bang could happen was the disembodied laws of mathematics. Let me go back to where I was going. So. We're trying to understand, and matter uh, has fallen off the wayside a long time ago as a, as a fundamental constituent of the universe, and we end up in a place where either the universe or the wider universe, if you like, the metaverse, is infinite or not, and we have no means of judging. But if the wider universe is infinite, then you demonstrate that mathematics itself breaks down and what is left is mind stuff. If the universe is finite somehow, finite, the wider universe is finite, and there's no such thing as real infinity out there, then mind stuff breaks down, and what is left is mathematics. So now it's a, again, and we, we come back to an article of faith, and the article of faith, because at this moment we have no means of knowing whether the wider universe is infinite or not, and, and we simply do not know, then it's your cho choice to say, well, I believe that we are, that infinity does exist, in which case the mind stuff of Alexander Vilenkin, you can actually label it as godhood, and then you have discovered godhood from physics and mathematics, uh, not at all the traditional god, but you have discovered a god that pervades, that, that suffuses the whole universe, including you, or you do not agree that the universe is infinite, and then you have discovered that, in fact, we live in a godless universe. And I don't think we can, certainly not me, I think maybe within 300, 400, 500 years, somebody will devise a way of testing whether the universe is infinite or not. I cannot imagine what it is. I don't think very ma many mathematicians today can conceptualize what it is. But hey, we are at the beginnings of science. Maybe we will eventually discover a way to understand whether we live in an infinite reality or not. 
What a delight uh, to speak with you. you you're very, it gave me a lot of hope. Uh, Chris Ransford, my guest, uh, he's, his book is called God and the Mathematics of Infinity, What Irreducible Mathematics Says About Godhood. Uh, you have a book uh, forthcoming. I'd love to talk with you about that one, too. Unfortunately, our time is up, but I did want to ask you, uh, this one personally, uh, where, do you, where do you come down on this, uh, if there is a Godhood or not, and how should we live either way? You know, you know, it's uh, if there's a God, we're part of it. We are gods ourselves, albeit we're very uh, small parts of it. Where I come down is is uh, twofold, and uh, the first one you know already, and the second you don't know. But the first one is I uh, have watched with with dismay, and that's not uh, that's too too weak a word. The debates that are ongoing. Uh, Richard Dawkins is uh, in Australian. You'd, you'd say he's talking out of his hat. By the same token, all the imams, all the and I don't want to, you know, but they they don't know what they're talking about, and that really hurts me because I personally, for all sorts of reasons that uh, I certainly don't want to ever go into, which is the reason why I'm sticking to to the math and the science. But I've had myself quite quite a number of mystical experiences that were definitely not traceable to a brainstorm uh, brought about by anything and that were that were actually uh, ascertainable from a third party objectively and that tells me that the material universe we see is not the only the only thing and there's something else you know, in science, it's a career killer right now to say that you believe in anything but Aristotelian materialism. The great thing is science has totally debunked it, is dead. So now we need to move on and to say, where do we go from there? So what I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to to contribute to reframing the debate where it should be. And I'm certainly not saying that I know everything, but I know for certain that there's no personal God, the way it's taught by religions everywhere. And I know for certain that the pure materiality that is peddled by the likes of Richard Dawkins is not the whole story. All right. Very good. And I so okay. much appreciate uh, uh, your book and your time and, and being with me today. It's been a fabulous pleasure to be with you, and uh, uh, thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to uh, doing that again sometime in the future. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.